We are going to continue our series today on what it means to live a transformed life. And as you remember, we are in the middle of looking at one of the characteristics, which is love. We've looked at what it means to love our brother. It looks, we've looked at what it means to love our children. Now let's turn our attention to look at what it means to love others. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, near the end of it, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The man was 34 years old when he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to deliver a 17-minute speech. According to the scholars, a scholar's poll in 1999, this particular speech was the finest speech ever given in the 20th century. The day after it was delivered, the LA Times said it was of matchless eloquence. And yet the night before, he didn't even know what he was going to say. There were speechwriters who gave, us some, gave him some copy, but he didn't like any of it. And so he labored into the wee hours of the morning. And when he stood that day on August 28, 1963, and he addressed more than 200,000 people who were gathered there on the mall, it wasn't until the 13th minute of his speech when a friend of the family's named Mahalia Jackson said to him, Martin, tell him your dream, that that speech took on epic proportions. Instantly, Dr. Martin Luther King diverted his eyes from his text, and he began to tell them his dream. In fact, today that speech is simply called, I Had a Dream Speech. And it's impossible to think of Martin Luther King without thinking of these words. So let's listen. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able 
to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream can't think of Martin Luther King without thinking of those words. And you know, for every disciple, it was the Sermon on the Mount. No disciple could ever consider the ministry of Jesus Christ without considering the words of Jesus on that mountain, that hillside, that day. And yet for most evangelical Christians, they're a bit of an afterthought. For most evangelical Christians, we can go for months, maybe even years, without looking at them, without appreciating the words of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason is that most of us who know Christ and who are conservative and evangelical know that when, it, when we're born again of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit changes things. And the thing that he most changes is our destiny. For most Christians, when you hear the words, born again, when someone says to you, are you saved? You think of heaven. Don't you? Don't lie to me. I know you. I know me. But when the disciples use the words of being born again or saved, they didn't just think about heaven. In fact, the good news of salvation was to them far bigger than our final destination. It affects our living here and now. Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd's Look at the 23rd Psalm, talks about the time that he bought a parcel of land in East Africa. And he gathered together some sheep, and he began to raise these sheep on this beautiful, lush land that he had. And next door to him, through a fence, was another pasture land that was kept by a, an itinerant farmer, a, a rental man. He said it was striking. If you looked over at his sheep, you saw sick, thin, weak, parasite-riddled sheep. He says, interesting. He began to watch what those sheep did in that field. Hardly any grass. Every day, for hours, they'd stand at the fence, looking over into his field, looking at the green grass. And he said, if they could have spoken, they would have said, would you please deliver me from this bondage? I hate this owner. According to the gospel of Jesus Christ, every one of us is owned. We all have an owner. The question is, who owns you? Are you owned by the rental 
man, the itinerant, the lord of this world, a wicked master who is only renting you for this life? Or are you owned by the owner of everything who promises you a fullness and a fatness and a lushness, not only in the times to come, but even right now. When Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wasn't just talking about eternal rest in heaven. He was talking about rest right here and right now. 300 years after Jesus Christ, the bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, gave an illustration that is, I believe, incredibly profound. He said this, Do you know what happens when an artist paints a portrait on a panel and then over time it begins to deteriorate? Over time it it begins to be obliterated by stains? He said, you know what the artist does. He doesn't discard the portrait. Rather, he has the subject come and sit again and he repaints on the same panel. He paints over the obscured vision. So it is with the second Adam. He came so that God might remake us in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. You know what Athanasius is talking about? He's talking about being saved and made whole right here in this world. He's talking about transformation. He's talking about a mind that thinks differently. He's talking about a heart and a will that respond differently. He's talking about what Jesus is talking about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the desire. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now notice, as I've said, this is the seventh chapter. This is the third chapter of this sermon. And it's near the end. The sermon begins with nine beatitudes, nine marks of what life will begin to look like when the Holy Spirit has sway and influence and power in that person's life. Then for two chapters, Jesus gives a commentary on what it means to be, for instance, poor in spirit. What's that mean? He tells us at the end of five and into six. What's it mean to mourn? What's it mean to be meek? What does it mean, these these nine beatitudes? What will they look like in a life? Jesus tells us. And then in chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus begins to wrap up. He says, so, whatever you desire. Now notice there is a so here, or a therefore here. And the question always should be prompted in our minds, what does it mean? What is the therefore, therefore? What is the so about? Well, the so, or the therefore, hooks to the last statements that Jesus has made. What immediately proceeds? Verse 12. Verse 11, where Jesus describes his heavenly Father. You know, I, I was uh, in Virginia as a, a young man. 
I heard a lot about this verse. I heard this verse perhaps as much as any other verse. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? I heard about it all the time. It was the charismatic renewal. And the deal was, ask the Lord for the gifts. He's promised you. If you being evil give good things to your children, how much more will He give to you? So ask Him. It was all about getting. Whatever you want, ask. And you'll receive. And while that is true, absolutely true, it's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying in verse 12. Jesus here isn't talking about getting, He's talking about giving. He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, because my Father is a giver, so ought you to be a giver if the Holy Spirit indwells you. Second, notice the deed. So whatever you wish that others do for you, to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now this is called in philosophy the law of reciprocity. It's an ethic that's found in almost every other major world religion. Listen to what the Jews say, Judaism. Whatever is hateful to you, don't do that to your neighbor. Right from the Mishnah. Listen to what Buddhism says. Hurt not others in a way that you would not want to be hurt. Listen to what Confucius says. Don't do to others what you wouldn't like to have done to you. All eight major world religions has this ethic of reciprocity. And it's always something like this. Refrain from doing to people the stuff that you hate. But notice what Jesus does to that ethic. He flips it around. He takes it from the negative to the positive. He says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. You see, for Jesus, this isn't a passive rule. This is an active rule. And as we apply it in our lives, all of a sudden it eliminates those questions we ask all the time. What should I do? What would they like? It eliminates those questions. What you should do and what they want is what you want. Now just imagine if you lived your life that way. Just imagine if you lived your life so that every time you had a want or a desire, instead of trying to fulfill it for yourself, you said, I bet they have it too, and you gave it to them. You want recognition? Give it to somebody else. You want to be appreciated? Appreciate somebody else. You want to be loved? Love somebody else. You want to be forgiven? Forgive somebody else. You want to be, have people be kind to you? Be kind to them? I was thinking about it this week. You know, we've raised our kids like Buddhists. We've applied the golden rule as if we're Buddhists. Listen. Don't you steal that toy. 
or they'll beat you up. Don't you do that bad thing? You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you? That's what a Buddhist would say. We've taught the golden rule as if it's an avoidance technique. Jesus never does that. For Jesus, it's proactive. It's a proactive expression of a transformed heart. You want to love others? You want them to love you? Start treating others the way you would like to be treated. It's revolutionary. It's an expression of what your life will begin to look like when the Holy Spirit is controlling you. Third, notice the direction. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. You know, for years I took a crowbar to verses 12 and 13. I never appreciated the fact that they go together. Whenever I thought of verse 12, the golden rule, I thought, well, that's an ethic. Whenever I thought of verse 13 about the narrow way and the wide way, I thought that's about heaven. I think I thought what every Christian thinks. The narrow gate is about getting to heaven. I mean, how many times have you heard that kind of sermon? Tons of times. The way is broad that leads to destruction. Talking about going to hell. Is he there talking about that? I don't think so. That leads to our fourth and final point. Notice the delineation. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. A rabbi was once asked, Sir, why is it that in olden days God seemed to be seen by people, and now nobody sees him? The rabbi said, because in the old days, or nowadays, no one can bow low enough. You think about what Jesus is talking about here. The gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. I always thought he's talking about life in heaven. But in reality, he's talking about life right here. Think of it. When we talk about somebody being full of life, what do we mean? They're funny, they're joyous, they're, they've got a great sense of humor, they can feel comfortable in their own skin, they're young at heart, they're carefree. Jesus wouldn't define it that way. When he speaks of the hard way that leads to life, he means living a life that his Father intended for us to live. He means a life of freedom from parasites and from bondage. He means living a life with a heart and a will that are free from the dominance of one's own self-interest. He means what the writer of Proverbs means when he says, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but that way leads to destruction. What's he talking about? He's talking about a wasted life. He's talking about a life that's wasted. That's what Jesus is talking about. 
Have you ever listened to people that are on the broad road? I mean, they're all around us. Sometimes all I have to do is open my ears and hear myself speak. You know what they say? They say, I've worked hard for my stuff. Leave me alone. They say, nobody's going to tell me what to do. They say, what's in it for me? They say, that sounds like a personal problem to me. Leave me alone. It's all about self. But notice, Jesus doesn't tell us to get rid of ourselves. He redirects ourselves. He says, examine yourself. What do you want? What do you desire? Then give it to somebody else. That's what it means to love others. Think of the first Adam. He wasted his life on self-promotion. The second Adam, he spent his life doing for others what he desired to do for himself. You see, Jesus didn't just save you to take you out of the world. He saved you to propel you into the world. To begin to love others as you have already been loved by Him. You want an illustration? May 13th, 1981. Pope John Paul is in that little Pope mobile. Remember? Mercedes. And he's riding around St. Peter's Square. And in the crowd is a Turkish Muslim named Hemet Ali Aja. And he takes a gun and he fires four bullets into Pope John Paul. Some of you may remember that. Immediately, they whisk the Pope away. He goes to the hospital, undergoes hours of surgery, and miraculously his life is saved. He spends 22 days in a Rome hospital. And as he emerges from that hospital, he asks everyone to pray for his brother, Aliaja. Because, he says, I've forgiven him. Now, at first blush, you say, well, that's what popes are supposed to do. But if you check the history, they don't do that. But he did. You know, John Paul went to the prison, into that private room, and they sat knee to knee, eye to eye, and he held Aliyah's hands. And he repeated the words, I forgive you. I forgive you. There are two iconic photos of those two men. One is the one in St. Peter's Square, and it's the picture of the Pope's face when he's being shot. He's in shock. The second photo is in the cell of Aliaja when the Pope comes in, and there's shock on his face, like, what are you doing here? 
in both pictures, it seems like there's the same question on each face. Why? Why would you shoot me? And why would you ever forgive me? And the answer is easy. The first question is prompted by a man living a life on the broad road. Why are you shooting me? The answer? Because I hate you. The other picture of shock is, why are you forgiving me? The answer? Because I love you. In fact, the second photo was so profound that Time Magazine put that on its cover with the, questions, with the question, why forgive? Over the next 20 years, before he died, Pope John Paul II not only befriended Ali Aja going to see him regularly, but he also befriended every member of his family. And in, 19, in 2006, one year after the Pope died, Ali Aja was released from prison. You may remember that. When they let him out, he had a magazine in his hand. It was the picture of his face when the Pope entered his cell. And when he held it up, he said, this is my dearest friend. Now, lest you think that this was a ploy, Ali Aja asked that to be baptized. And he was. He went from being Muslim to being a Christian. You know what you file that under? You file that under transformation. You file that under the majesty of the narrow road. You file that under brokenness healed. You file that under an abundant life. When you think about Martin Luther King, don't you think of that speech? When you think of Jesus, don't you think we should think about his speech and these words? He takes an ethic that was known in the world and he flips it around from negative to positive. And he says, you want to have fun in life? You want to be carefree? then do for others what you would do for yourself. And my Father will bless you for it. Think about that. Amen.